This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. I heard through the grapevine somebody was mocking my or imitating, <laughs> I'll use a more positive word, <laughs> imitating my opening. I heard you did hey. an okay job. That guy, <laughs> that guilty offender is, is also on the line, Jamar Tisby. Hey, it's the best form of flattery, man. <laughs> That's what they say. That's what they say. <laughs> How you doing, brother? Somebody contacted me and said he, he I, I fooled him for a minute. He really thought it was you for a second. <laughs> hey, man, you could do it. Take over. Take over, brother. No way, man. Um, <laughs> Man. I'm here. <laughs> I really don't know how to answer that question. Um, <laughs> not today, wondering even for the next four years. But uh, yeah, man, I'm here. Um, and I, it's not a perpetual thing, but I've been telling folks it's going to take me it, it, it's going to take me a little while to sort of feel yeah. back to my normal self. How about you? Yeah, man, um, I am. And we'll talk a little bit about it in the podcast, but I am both discouraged in some ways and highly encouraged, resolved, determined in other ways, maybe more so than I've, I've been in a while. I think that may be a momentary surge of resistance, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not exactly sure how that will play itself out over the coming weeks and months. But at this moment, I'm feeling a dichotomy and of a dual nature of really discouraged for what I see and some of the things that I'm seeing in the church and in the world, of course, but also being highly motivated, determined, energized to do something about it. Good. Well, hold on to that. (laughs) (laughs) Jamar's like, I'm not there yet. So you got to. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into it, guys. We want you to, um, to share this if you are watching or listening, or I should say listening to this live. Um, thank you guys for joining us. We want you to share this with your friends. Um, they can also listen in as well. Uh, if you've been following us, Jamar also did a raw reca- recap about his presidential thoughts um, on uh, a couple of days ago. So you can find that on our website. We also want you to download the uh, podcast with Soong Chan Ra, a professor yes. of North Park Seminary. Um, he did a phenomenal job. And I'm telling you, uh, a lot of people, a lot of people didn't know about him. I was shocked. I'm like, man, y'all, y'all need to get familiar. This brother is for real. He's legit. So Jamar did a wonderful man, interview it there. Was right so, on time too. It was right on time. Yes. It's very relevant for right now. He he wrote a book called The Next Evangelicalism, and we chop, chop it up about that a little bit too. So folks will definitely want to listen to that in the very near future. Absolutely. So continue to follow us. Also, you can lock into our community on the Pass the Mic Facebook group. Go on Facebook.com, search Pass the Mic, request to be a part, and also follow us on Twitter at underscore Pass the Mic and Rand Network at Rand Network. Okay, so Jamar, let's get into it. 
I want to talk a little bit about the overall reaction from the Christian body right now regarding the Trump election. And for many people, this is perceived to be maybe the the toughest critique that I've received, toughest critique that you've received, that the pushback against the evangelical, overwhelming evangelical vote for Donald Trump is getting heavy criticism. And now that pushback is getting its own pushback. So Trump, as we know, voted for, um, Trump was voted for by evangelicals. 81% of that tribe or our tribe, whichever one you want to, if you jettisoning <laughs> the label, that tribe, if you're continuing with the label, our tribe, uh, voted for him. So now there's a big question about the critique towards evangelicalism and its usage at all, whether or not it's a legitimate term. So can you talk a little bit about how you're processing that and then I want to get into some of the tweets that you uh, fired off recently as well. Specifically, the term evangelical. Yeah, man. It was a fraught term long before this election. Um, mm. And and as this election has done with so many other issues, it simply highlighted what I think was already there. And so um, the problem with the term evangelical isn't the classic definition, isn't 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 the term in the Greek isn't the isn't even the the, the theological um, uh, definition of it things like the authority of the Bible and the emphasis on a, a personal relationship with Christ those kinds of things are are good and great and for that reason evangelical became a useful term for a time the problem in my view is that evangelical has not become a primarily theological or religious term it's become primarily in popular imagination a political and a cultural term uh, the the political and the cultural baggage that goes with that uh represents me as a minority very very little and so i long since you stopped referring to myself as an evangelical uh, really, sometimes I use it as shorthand because it's it's still a readily understood term, uh, and so for that reason, it's it's a little bit it's got a little utility left in it. But mm -hmm. as one of my good friends recently just said, uh, you know, folks outside the church when they hear evangelical, they're going to really associate it with the 2016 election and specifically with Donald Trump. So. It's right. not really uh, something I want to put out there. Yeah. Now, you went on a, a little bit of a tweet rant, and it was a very carefully curated rant um, <laughs> that was storified. And uh, I just want to read a couple of these tweets. The first one is, many white evangelicals are asking what specifically they can do to demonstrate their support of racial minorities, especially African Americans. The second tweet is, first, I think white evangelicals should talk to their friends, relatives, coworkers, etc., about whiteness. And then you say, help them see that much of their worldview comes from a nation that gives benefits for whiteness and penalties for any other color. Um, now, when you're talking about whiteness, I've seen that most people are responding adversely and reflexively and defensively to the term white <laughs> evangelical after having adopted a term prior to. So now it is a problem to group and classify white evangelicals. And many people are saying, well, you're just painting with a broad brush, just like you say, we shouldn't paint you or your community with a broad brush. Your response to that, as far as seeing this this term, this whiteness, people would say that's an abrasive term. Uh, 
what's the response to this idea that we're being inconsistent, we're being hypocritical because we're generalizing the same people that we're asking to not generalize us? Well, again, this election makes some of these issues acute, but I don't think they're new. So for a long time, when folks, particularly in mainstream media, uh, but also within the church, would use the term evangelical and then talk about whatever they're going to talk about, whether that's discipleship, whether that's um, racial reconciliation, whether that's you know particular issues or problems, mm-hmm. typically you could and would have been more accurate to insert the term white before the word evangelical. So what I'm saying with that is evangelical has for me, in my view, in a long, for a long time, really been talking about white evangelicals. Um, right. uh, so, so, so this isn't new in that sense. Um, as far as the, the sort of reverse, you know, is, is, is it fair to say, is it fair to generalize what I think in particular with those tweets, I'm talking about the, the eight out of 10 evangelicals who mm-hmm. voted for Trump. <laughs> right. And, and so I think it is fair in that context. And, and I don't know what generalizations I'm making either. That right. Those series of tweets were in direct response to many, 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 many requests from white people, particularly white pastors saying, hey, we want to know how we can best serve and, and ally with our brothers and sisters of color. So it was a response to that. And, uh, yeah. and, and it is a little bit general in the sense that I, I'm, I'm speaking broadly, but I don't think it's a pejorative generalization. Right. Now, here's the thing that I think I'm seeing, and it's really maybe a little bit of a contradictory response, and I'm, I'm struggling with it, I must admit, is that people are coming to me and telling me, hey, we've always been about racial reconciliation. We've <clears throat> always been about coming together. We've been working towards this. This is our heart. This is our mantra. You know, we want the church to be one. And then when critique is, when there's pushback, when there's critique that says, okay, well, this is how we become reconciled. This is the pathway, which necessarily involves some sort of confrontation, some sort of uh, admittance of a divide and why that divide exists. Now people are saying, well, that's offensive. It was like, well, you wanted, (laughs) you want a reconciliation. If you want reconciliation, this is part of the, the pathway to it. And one of the stops is understanding how people of color, particularly your brothers and sisters are feeling and what this is factually doing to them, for them, how this is changing the environment. And so it's been very difficult to have some of these conversations, even post-election, as I've had numerous ones with white brothers and sisters who are having a challenge of, of now reconciling whether or not they truly are wanting to be reconciled. Yeah. And so I say, well, what, what do you want? What, what would you want for us to do? Would you want for us to not tell you? Because Trump and the election of Trump actually set reconciliation back. And so it set reconciliation, all the efforts that we've been doing, it kind of caused us to moonwalk a little bit rather than pushing us <laughs> forward. Uh, would you Would you agree, Jamar? I would 100% agree with that. Um, as somebody who, who labors day in and day out for racial reconciliation, has made the conscious decision to remain um, in, in fellowship with, with white evangelicals in spite of many, many, many different issues pertaining to uh, just how 
how intractable this issue of race is. I agree that this election has not helped racial reconciliation, to to, to put it mildly. And I, I say that because um, what it has done for me is revealed uh, or highlighted the both the gap that there is in understanding and the extent to which people are willing to to go in order to close that gap. And and right. and and I thought I thought folks were willing to go farther if 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 I'm going to be honest. Um, right. Or at least when they didn't, it 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 still hurt. Yeah, and it's funny because we were talking before, and I'm not going to put him out and, and steal his analogy, but when Bo and I were talking before the show went live, um, he just kind of gave an illustration about how we thought we were much further along than than we actually were, and uh-huh. then the realization of more. You know, on the yeah. Pass the Mic private group forum, we, we talked a little bit about that. It's like getting to kind of seeing the finish line in the distance and then someone saying, Hey, there's 10 more miles. So push you like, wait, what? Like yes. I, I, at I least gave it my all just get here. <laughs> right. So, yeah. and then, and then this is kind of leads to the point of saying, well, maybe we won't see it in our lifetime, you know, as our previous generations and ancestors and the legacy and history behind us did not see everything that we see now. So, and, and- but, even beyond that, you know, like we were saying before, it's not just that the the finish line is is now farther than we thought. It's that at the same time, somebody pulled us back half a mile. <laughs> you know, come on, Doc, man, so, wow. So it's it's not just that we have further to go than we thought, but that actually we we lost ground as well. Yeah. But I think in the end, it'll be beneficial because here's the thing: um, I see a lot of folks calling for unity and civility and i think they're mistaking honesty and truth for disunity and incivility mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now i'm not saying that there are people out there who have a poor tone wow. i'm not saying that uh social media is the best place to 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 have these discussions i am saying that that notes of discontent and dissent are not uh uh necessarily uh uh detrimental to the unity of the church. In fact, they can be beneficial to the unity of the church because what this has exposed is that the unity we thought we had either wasn't based on truth or was based on very very shallow understanding of truth. And so what I hope is that we do not forego the opportunity to delve deeper into our differences so that we, we could come out on the other side with a more robust unity. Yeah. Now kind of segueing into that, the next three tweets that you gave in your thread, I think it perfectly summarizes this idea. You say second, and this is the fourth tweet in this thread, you say second, white evangelicals should decenter themselves oh. in diagnosing racial problems and in offering possible solutions. Since white evangelicals are part of the majority, sometimes they can't see what they can't see. Mm-hmm. People in the center need the perspectives of those on the margins so the former can act more justly towards the latter. I talked a little bit about this yesterday on Twitter as well, is that one of the things that I'm seeing is this rejection of the term racism. So say, <laughs> don't say that the people who voted for Donald Trump are racist. Don't say that they're bigoted. Don't say that they're prejudiced. There were any number of reasons that led to um, their voting for that particular candidate. And I, I would say, yes, there probably are any number of reasons. Uh, there may be – this was in many ways a rejection 
of a very unpopular Democratic uh, candidate. This was a, in many ways, rejection of elitism that the Democratic Party has not dealt with. Right. This is very much so that this is very much so a feeling of of disappoint disappointment or anger at the direction of the country. I totally understand all of that. But as Van Jones said on CNN, this does have a racial component. He said, we've talked about class, we've talked about all these other things, but we're refusing to talk about race. And in some ways, this is a reflexive pushback towards eight years of a black presidency and towards a growing rise in what people would consider or, or what we would say is a revealing of racial tension in the country. So what I say is it's very difficult for me to hear an insistence that, hey, guys, this isn't racism when people – the people who are saying that don't identify what racism is. Mm-hmm. We've gone to great pains here on the show uh, to define what we believe racism is. You did an episode on systemic racism and implicit bias. I've done episodes where I define – try to put together a definition of what is racism versus what is bias versus what is partiality biblically. Uh, And also talking about what is white privilege? How do we diagnose and identify the efficacy of using that term? So we've, we've gone through great pains to try to define that with a biblical worldview, with a lens that does not neglect what is going on in the culture. But what I see is people are refusing to define what racism is and then saying something is not racist. (laughs) <laughs> you can't do that because yeah. you haven't defined what it is. And yeah. when you don't define what it is, you necessarily walk right into that issue of of not properly identifying it. So is it possible that maybe even if we are doing something that is racially inflammatory, racially ignorant, racially insensitive, is it possible we don't know it? And is it right. possible that we need help to identify it, right? And, I, and, and, and you're so right. Uh, and I think what we have to do is – is constantly define racism. Uh, it's not something that we can do once, uh, put it on the shelf, and hope people will refer to. It just absolutely we're just not there yet. And so, in in the context of this election, I think we need to understand racism a couple of ways. One, and this is what most people think of, is the overt form of racism, which is I have some sort of personal animosity toward people who are different, whether because of skin color or you know, foreign born or whatever. Um, and, 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 and if I don't feel that, then I'm not racist. And then for you to say that, you know, somehow this, um, a vote for Trump was racist. Well, you're not talking about me. So stop saying it. That's one, if, if that's your definition, that's certainly, you know, an understandable response. But I think there's, there's, there are other definitions. There are other, uh, aspects of racism. One is the systemic that you've talked about. But another one that I thought about in in the context of of voting is this: uh, the opposite of of love is not hate; it's indifference um, by mm. by some, you know. And so, in the context of this vote, as an African American, I feel like uh, a vote for Trump was not sin; it's not sinful, and and we should talk about that in a moment. Sure. But I I do feel that. Uh, as an African-American, given the, the, the historical and social context of the United States, it demonstrates an indifference to the concerns of minorities and particularly African-Americans. And so in that sense, if racism is a form of hatred and indifference is a form of hatred, you could say that there are – you could at least say 
that there are racist implications yeah. of a vote like this. They're and at I know worst that's cousins, be, you know, they're at worst they're cousins. Worse. I know that's going to really tick some people off and, and people are going to listen to this and, and be squirming in their seats. But But look, we've got to contend with the fact that Many, 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 many minorities of all kinds, and particularly African-Americans, said, no way. We listen to this guy, and he clearly hates us. He clearly doesn't understand us. And if he doesn't personally hate us, there are people who are enthusiastically supporting him who do, e.g. the KKK, sure. um, and many others who who aren't <laughs> affiliated with a formal organization. Uh, to continue, and, and I mean, how do you... The only explanations I've heard uh, uh, about those comments that seem to inflame racial hatred uh, by people who voted for him or people who want us to, you know, ease up or whatever. The only thing I've heard is, well, you know, he's he's just being him or uh, he could be better than we thought or there were other concerns at play. Well, he could have said things better. He could have yeah. said things better. <laughs> you know, it, and all of that could be true. But at, the, at at some point, you have to say that that wasn't as important as these other things. And how am I right. supposed to receive that? Absolutely. And that's the thing is they saw who he was and they said, for whatever reason, there are other things more important than what you are saying and what you are pointing out about him. We see it. Maybe he could have said some things better, but X, Y, and Z issue. And so yeah. it is a calculation. And so when people say, yeah. oh, you're, you're blanket. No, you made a calculation. And yeah. other, unless you did not, unless you failed to hear some of his comments, unless you failed to hear how he opened up his campaign, well, then <laughs> you made a calculation. And, and on the other side, it exists as well. You know, those who voted for the Democratic candidate, uh, Hillary Clinton, they made a calculation. And yep. same for those who voted third party. We all make calculations, right? That's right. But That's I think right. the, the problem the problem is when we ignore the calculations that we have made. And many of us are saying there is a direct line between what a Trump presidency means and safety and concern for people of color. Yes, now, I want, yes, yes. I, and, and I want to get into that. A lot of people are asking, why are you – someone on Twitter even asked me, why are – People of color, why are my brothers and sisters in these communities concerned so much about a Trump presidency? And I think what people have missed is this idea of personality. There's a difference between personality and policy, and there's a difference between atmosphere and climate. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. for me, when people say, uh, well, what has Trump said that's directly racist? They're asking the wrong question. We can point to certain things that are uh, clearly and overtly what we would call dog whistle politics, dog whistles that are showing a stereotype and highlighting a stereotype about marginalized people groups or minority people groups in an attempt to cause fear, angst, um, anger, and in some cases, xenophobia, right? A fear of the other. Absolutely. But what we're also saying is it's not as much just what he has done, it is who he has empowered. And those are, <laughs> that's even that. more, that's even more important. What's even more important is not just what he has done per se, but it is who he has given voice to and empowered. And what a lot of people are saying, um, are failing to understand is you must understand the people who has placed around him 
have consistently been insensitive to the concerns of people of color. We're thinking of Rudy Giuliani. We're thinking of the Breitbart um, news director. We're thinking of even Dr. Ben Carson, who has said things that have been inflammatory and insensitive and ignorant towards uh, communities of color. And so what we would say is, who is he empowering and who are his supporters? How are his supporters reacting to this? Now, again, I know we're being very vocal towards Donald Trump, very vocal towards his campaign. Please, please do not take this as, as saying we do not have critiques, very sharp ones for the Democratic National Convention and Democrats in general and the Democratic uh, candidate. But now that we have a president who was supported by the majority of Christians, who is our audience, we must reckon with this reality. And I think most people are unaware. You take, for example, 1973, one of the largest housing discrimination lawsuits was settled um, towards, it was against Donald Trump. It was against him and his organization. Housing is discrimination as it relates to people of color. Now, what would we say? Well, did Donald Trump do it? Did he not? Well, whether he did it or not, quote unquote, what does this say about his demeanor? And you should read the quotes if you haven't. What should this say about his demeanor towards discrimination in that area? People bring up the Central Park Five, which he said was guilty even after and continues to say is guilty even after DNA evidence has exonerated them. Well, what would this say about what we know to be false confessions in our system that adversely affects people of color? So again, people are like, well, what about the policy? What about this? He loves people of color in this area. And what about this and that? And and you're missing the point. And the point is, what has his reaction been towards the ills that historically face people of color in America? Which and is, the reaction has been indifference. Yeah, uh, which, which is why. <laughs> I mean, that's again, this is not just Trump. This has been a critique uh, that that minorities have had of the Republican Party for many years, which is why in the 2012 autopsy, uh, one of the main recommendations was the party has to find ways to reach out to uh, yes. minorities and make sure that they un- that that we the GOP understand their concerns. So so that's been a constant critique. But I also want to want to want to want to flesh this out a little bit because not everyone who voted for Trump and vo- voted for him enthusiastically. I think I saw one absolutely. Poll- Absolutely. Where they were, like, it was like only like forty three percent were excited about their their candidate, uh, the, the, who voted Trump, something like that. Don't quote me, but it wasn't everybody, right? So, um, you know, acknowledging that, especially the the white Christians who I have contact with, they weren't, they were voting for Supreme Court appointments. They were voting Absolutely. for a hopeful repeal of Roe v. Wade. Um, and and pro life, they were voting for traditional sexual ethics. Um, some of them maybe for you know small government that kind of thing. That's what they had in mind when they filled out the bubble for Trump. I think, and and mm-hmm. and I hope I'm being fair in that. And I get that. Uh, however, you know, like you said, we all make calculations. Um, to me, Trump's rhetoric, like you're saying, creates a context. And Absolutely. that context is a clear and present danger, physical, bodily danger for uh, minorities. Now, there are going to be some people, I think, listening and say, oh, well, that's an exaggeration. Listen. Right. You're being dramatic. I, you know. <laughs> exactly. I'll give you just a trivial example. Um, uh, 
I've lived in the Mississippi Delta a couple times now. And uh, there was a place that there's not a whole lot of nightlife in the Delta. Let me just say that. Um, there's not a <laughs> I, whole lot. I can imagine. Half- yeah. So, so a new place opened up. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a bar that had a dance floor and, and it was, it was going to be awesome. I won't give the name cause I don't want to, you know, call anybody out, but, but the name itself made it very clear which uh, demographic and which audience this place wanted to cater to. But since it's literally the only place in the County where you could do those kind of things, like go out and play pool or something. You know, so black folks wanted to go. But we would not go unless we had white people with us because we did not feel safe. We thought, well, you know, at least if white folks are with us, they can vouch for us if anybody kind of looks at us sideways. If you haven't had that experience, and I don't just mean being uncomfortable, right, because there are places white folks would feel uncomfortable Right. That becomes that becomes a back and forth. That's unhelpful. You know, well, I've I've experienced this. I've experienced that, too. So I'm talking about like your physical safety is in question. Like you you really think you might get jumped. Uh, And that's a pervasive sense. Like 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 black people have a sixth sense about mm, not quite sure if I'm welcome there because of my race. Right. So absolutely. I I also want to speak to. this idea that the cliches that we're hearing and i believe firmly that the scripture mandates that we pray for those who are in power over us i 100 percent agree with that and believe that and i have done so even on the night of the election and uh, with new groups of people numerous different people praying for the president praying for the administration praying for the president-elect and praying that the Lord would guide them and and lead him in particular and the people around him. 100%, I completely agree with that. That is biblical. That is scriptural. We pray for redemption. We pray for repentance. We pray for all these things. But at the same time, what I also want, I think we should be careful of, is this passivity Mm -hmm. that causes us that is mistaken. We mistake this rest in Christ and rest in the kingship, lordship of Jesus, for a passivity towards yes, the, come on, the, what I call a privileged passivity. Mm. Well, some people are saying, "Hey, we're going to make it through this. We're going to make it through this four years. We made it through the previous forty-four presidents, guys. Come on. I mean, we, we're going <laughs> to make it through." And I'm saying, "How do we know that? And what is leading you to say that?" And for some of us, it is contradictory because we have wept when black bodies have been laying in the streets. We have wept when we have seen hashtags and we have said we feel angst. But now we say, well, you know, I guess let's give him a chance. And if he does well, well, hang on now. We do give him a chance, but we do not ignore how he got into the office to begin with. And that should give us an, an activity rather than a passivity. Which says, okay, well, Jesus is on the throne. Yes, he is. He will always be. And we still have a responsibility to bring his kingdom. And we still have a responsibility to represent him on the earth. And because of that, we cannot fall into passivity. And specifically to my black brothers and sisters, my, my brothers and sisters of color, uh, I, we, have to, we have to reject the cliché 
we have to reject this static mentality because what we have done is we have we are setting the course for our children. We're setting the course for our, our grandchildren. We are setting the course for future generations. And we must continue to, to preach truth. We must continue, we must become, even as, as Dr. King said, maladjusted. We must remain maladjusted to a, a climate that would enhance bigotry, bias, senseless violence, and, and the things that have made it difficult for us to be free and flourish and thrive. We can't just fall back into the cliche and become passive in a very privileged way that says, you know, everything's going to be fine, guys. You know, no sweat off my back. I trust in God, not man. Listen, <laughs> there are very weird, real world implications in a sinful, fallen world. We cannot ignore that. It is negligent to ignore that. And if you know we <laughs> listen, if we are, if we miss this, we are going to sacrifice for eight years. And, and we are going to miss an opportunity of, of really affecting our culture and bring unity to the church. True unity, reconcile unity to the church. Go ahead, Jamar. I'm sorry. No, that's good, man. It, it reminds me of something, a comment a friend made. So I live in a place where the downtown is blighted, is economically depressed, and has been for a generation. So there are, there are literally abandoned buildings crumbling in on themselves with weeds growing up on the inside of the building, all that kind of thing. Wow. And um, I remember driving by one day with my friend, and he said, I hope I, I, hope I never get used to this. I, I hope I never get so um, comfortable and desensitized and 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 that seeing this kind of decay becomes so routine that I that it stops being shocking to me. And I think that's yeah. a little bit along the lines of what you're saying is we ought not to be so comfortable with the deep seated racism embedded in every aspect of this United States culture. That uh, since it's so pervasive and and it's been so long standing, that that we get complacent about it. We need to fight it all the time. And again, um, you know, this election simply makes those issues more acute. But they've always been there. The other thing, the other thing I'll say is this: uh, f- folks talk a lot about voting their conscience, and I completely agree that voting or even abstaining is a matter of conscience. Um, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, God alone is the Lord of the conscience. Uh, the, 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 the Bible itself is, is where we get this concept. Uh, and, and it's a matter of conscience because everybody's got to make um, decisions and calculations when they're voting. Uh, yeah. nobody is going to get, no Christian is going to get everything he or he wants or everything she wants in, uh, in a candidate or a platform. So you're voting for policies, which are always complex because if you promote one policy, it can have many unintended consequences and ripple effects toward other policies that matter very Absolutely. highly too. Uh, we also have different priorities. Um, so, so what may be a top priority in terms of policy for one person could be another for another person and neither of them, those people are wrong. Uh, to complicate matters further, when we vote, we're not just voting for policies, we're voting for people. And people are complex and sinful, and 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 we've got to take what comes. So, so nobody comes out with their hands clean, no matter if you vote, don't vote, vote Republican, Democrat, third party, abstain. 
that's why it's got to be a matter of conscience. Um, it gets very dangerous when a church says this is the righteous person. Um, right. So in critiquing a Trump presidency, I'm not saying that the people who voted for him are, are, are sinned uh, any more than I would want them to say that I sinned for casting my vote the way I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that voting your conscience still has consequences. Hmm. And so we cannot exonerate ourselves because we feel at peace in our consciences. We do, we are not exonerated from the consequences of those decisions. And so the consequences of a Trump presidency for African-Americans, for women, for immigrants, for Muslims, for uh, uh, homosexuals, those are pretty dire <laughs> uh, in my estimation. Um, like you said, it's creating a context, it's creating a culture. I've already seen people who hold ideas that are inimical to biblical morality now feel emboldened to voice those ideas. And it won't be long, and it's already happened to a certain extent, to act on those ideas. That's what I'm concerned about. Now, being concerned about that and reacting to that, you can take it as a personal indictment if you want, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying our voting our conscience still has consequences, and that goes no matter who you voted for. Now, you you said endemical. What would you say? Endemical. 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 I ain't never heard that word. <laughs> this brother pulled out the SAT. He said, "Let me tell you." Yeah, hopefully, let, I used it right. <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you this, Jamar. Okay, so as as we kind of round third on this podcast, we cannot leave the podcast without talking about the opposing side. And for many people, this was a very strong repudiation of liberal policy that has grown over the past eight years. And I think some people would say, well, there's a group of people who are angry and this group of people, and I'll make this comment before I ask my question. I I think when people say, hey, our white rural friends, um, our neighbors are angry as well. So you should listen to them just like you want me to listen to you. I would say, yes, that is true, but we, we cannot mistake anger for disenfranchisement. And those are two separate things. Uh, many people feel that they have not had a voice in the previous eight years, and they feel like their their culture has not been represented, but that does not equate to the same fear of safety that people right. of color uh, fear. So, so I do want to say that, that some people have said, well, you see, there's this group of people who, well, this group of people is the majority. And so because it's the majority, they may have been left out and they may have been stigmatized. And that's wrong wherever that's happened. And they may have been ignored by the church, as many have said. And that's wrong wherever that has happened. But to immediately say that's the same exact thing as people of color's inherent struggle and historical ills that have plagued this country, I would say, is not a fair comparison. But we must talk about the fact that many people have felt ignored. Many people have felt left out. Um, by the Democratic Party and by liberal policy. And so it's impossible, and we can do a a longer episode on this later, but I think it's impossible to deal with this without saying this was a pretty heavy repudiation of what is perceived to be elitism in the Democratic Party, what is perceived to be uh, the establishment, what is perceived to be um, a, a caustic response to traditionalism. There were a lot of things here that 
uh, I believe that our liberal friends and our Democratic Party friends should take and heed and should listen to and should consider as they move forward. Because what is clear is that the past eight years have led people to believe that the country has shifted so dramatically. And it led the polls to believe the country has shifted so dramatically that a Trump presidency was unthinkable. And all of us who thought that, we are dead wrong. (laughs) Mm -hmm, We were mistaken. mm -hmm. From pollsters all the way down to podcasters, we were all wrong. (laughs) And so how do we we think through uh, a a very robust – and I think the church should do this in in a very patient way – a very robust critique of liberalism and liberal political ideology – that says, hey, you cannot leave out very important groups of people. Well, you know, you're right. This is a referendum on Democrats and their brand of liberalism as as much as it is uh, telling us a lot about Republicans and, and white evangelicals. And so, you know, just what I'll say briefly, and others have said much more um, uh, extensively, is if you're a, a Democrat or a, a social or theological liberal, you cannot take the, the the sincerely held beliefs of people and dismiss them, denigrate them, um, ridicule them as absurd. Uh, it will engender this kind of reaction uh, that 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 leads to a, a Donald Trump presidency. And so I see that happening. That that people who um, are on what we would call the liberal side or, or, or many Democrats would look at traditional Christian beliefs and values and scoff at them. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel that frustration myself as a Christian, and I can certainly see how many people uh, in this context would, uh, would, would say, well, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for the candidate who's not insulting uh, what I believe to be true. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's very important for us as there's a tension here, because as we critique, you know, the the broad group of white evangelicals, as we kind of push back against this, these ideas uh, that we feel are, are harmful for our safety, we do we don't want to discard. Um, one of the things I said yesterday in my tweet thread is. Calling out racial bias does not mean the discarding of the person. We are forceful because we are fearful, but we must be very careful to continue to pray, to reject bitterness, even though we feel, and this is how uh, many people have expressed that they have felt, betrayed um, and, and marginalized and not listened to and silenced. But we must make, make hard effort and extensive effort uh, to continue to reject bitterness, to continue to reject hatred, because that would only give, um, that would only be feeding into what the enemy wants. That would only be feeding into our great adversary, and that's not the gospel. And so I'm trying to think about ways to further understand, and there's a whole lot of nuance with this. So it's just not a, hey, you know, you guys feel bad, so let me let me come alongside you and understand. Well, there's that, but then there's there's also some other things as well that are that is attached to that. Um, and there's some some stretching and broadening of that that concept, but I don't want to ignore that because I think a lot of our white brothers and sisters are in an interesting place, standing against Trump or saying we didn't want this, but yet understanding that many voted in that way. So I think we must continue to have dialogue. We must continue to open up uh, avenues that 
do not center whiteness, but include it in the conversation because it is important. And we must remember that they're part of the body too. And you are a part of the body if you're listening. We love you. We appreciate you. Um, we hope that you will do what you can in your community to continue to promote reconciliation and unity in ways that decenter this, you know, worldview of of whiteness or privilege or, or whatever. And that would center the gospel. That would center becoming weak, so that Christ may be strong in us. So hopefully, all those things make sense, and hopefully, the the Democratic Party will take this and and shift the approach. Some people have said historically, when the Democrats are voted out, they move morally or socially more to the right. We'll see if that happens. I don't know. I think this may be a time where they might teeter a little bit more to the left. But uh, that's that theory. Yeah, we'll we'll see we'll see how that plays out. We'll see. Well, I do want to say um, in in that tweet thread you were mentioning that I put out, one of the the recommendations I had was, you know, if if we want to see racial reconciliation progress in the church, um, then there are a couple things we can do. One is that white evangelicals, especially with you know, we're we're recording this before Thanksgiving, just before Thanksgiving, um, you know, at that Thanksgiving table, talk to your friends and relatives, help them to understand what it means um, to 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 center whiteness, help them understand what it means uh, for African Americans to be concerned about a Trump presidency. So you can have those conversations that we can't. But another way, a very practical way of of um, sort of making progress in terms of racial reconciliation is decentering uh, whiteness and white perspectives and uh, promoting minority uh, voices and perspectives. And so that comes through uh, supporting minority led institutions. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll just I'll just put it out there. Do you We've know any? Do you know any minority-led institutions, Jamar? I don't know. I'm I'm glad you asked, <laughs> Tyler. Um, Look, there we've gotten calls, tweets, posts, and more. People are affirming us. They're telling us how much they appreciate the ministry. Uh, but if you want to concretely support us in a way that goes beyond words, there there is a way to do that. We want to bring theological nuance to issues of race and culture, and the demand for this ministry, you know, may have never been more important. Um, so help us continue to build the ministry of Rand. Make a donation at randnetwork.org/donate. Randnetwork.org slash donate. Now is the time if you want to invest in reconciliation. Your dollars go toward expanding our reach, empowering our team, and providing gospel-centered content that addresses the core concerns of African Americans biblically. Some folks have already taken that plunge, and we appreciate you so much. Uh, Your work is helping uh, this mission. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. Also, continue to follow us on social media. We'll be back next week with another episode, and we'll see you soon on the next Pass the mic. mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.